So I'd like to welcome all of you that are joining us tonight uh, on behalf of the Christian Study Center of Gainesville. Allow me to welcome each of you uh, to this virtual event, our second webinar on the life and work of Yvonne Illich. Uh, my name is, I think most of you know, is Michael Sacassis, and I'm the Associate Director of the Center. Uh, the Study Center exists uh, alongside of the University of Florida. Uh, we're not affiliated with the university, but we do see our work as an effort to support the university in its work and to enrich the intellectual community that takes shape in and around it. We are a distinctly Christian organization, as our name uh, suggests. So this means that we're especially interested in bringing uh, to bear the resources of the Christian intellectual tradition on what we believe are, are shared human questions. We're eager to foster thoughtful conversations about uh, the role of about contemporary culture and to draw on a broad range of scholarship and criticism in order to address these shared human questions and better understand the world that we all share. And we hope that these efforts do serve uh, both the common good and promote human flourishing. I will say that there will be a time of Q&A at the end of this talk. And as I suspect most of you know by this point in uh, our travels through Zoom world. You can type out your questions uh, below and I will check in on those at the end. And I will also add that uh, I will look forward to doing so because that will be, uh, in fact, my first interaction uh, with another person at the other end of this uh, event. I've noted that when we do Zoom, it's not a matter of the I-thou, but the I, me, thou, as uh, our image appears as well, and we are distracted by it. And I will say that in this particular format, webinar format, it's not even the I, me, thou. It is simply I, me. So I will uh, try not to look too often at this image, except to make sure that the um, feed is staying live and bear your, um, ask for your patience as I navigate this still not quite hospitable and certainly not convivial environment. So having said that, let me uh, begin uh, our talk. This talk uh, I have chosen uh, to title it Conspiratorial Friendship, uh, Yvonne Illich and the Politics of uh, Conviviality. Uh, so having risked including the word politics in the title of this talk, I should probably clarify that I, I don't uh, intend to talk directly about what mostly passes for politics today. At least I don't intend to talk about any specific policies or pieces of legislation, court decisions, or executive orders, or anything of that sort. Instead, with the help of Ivan Illich, or I should say, through my own ongoing and evolving engagement with his work, I want us to consider elements of what we might call political culture, or the assumptions and habits and beliefs that structure and govern how we experience politics. To put this another way, I'm not so much interested tonight in narrowly political issues uh, as I am in how we are, as Aristotle famously wrote, political animals. We're political animals, or as it's sometimes translated, social animals, because the occasional hermit notwithstanding, we are a social species given to living together in a variety of arrangements, households, clans, tribes, villages, cities, or nation states, to give a few examples. And we do so as a species gifted with powers of speech and reason, although one might be occasionally tempted to doubt the latter, if not also the former. It was because of these proclivities and capacities that Aristotle concluded that we are fundamentally political or social creatures. On this view, politics is simply what happens when a group of us attempts to live together and are thus forced to work through our divergent and often mutually exclusive desires or sort out how our common resources are to be best used, etc. From this perspective, it seems to me that how we conceive of ourselves and the other, as well as the relationship that obtains between us, is a critical element of political culture. And it is along these lines that I would like to think out loud with you in conversation with Ivan Illich. In the last talk, this is the second of three talks, in the last talk I referenced a few lines from Illich's De-Schooling Society, 
first published in 1970, which I'd like to take as a point of departure tonight. It was his purpose, Illich wrote in the first chapter of Deschooling Society, to, quote, show that the institutionalization of values leads inevitably to physical pollution, social polarization, and psychological impotence, three dimensions in a process of global degradation and modernized misery. Each time I read this sentence, I'm struck by its prescience, although, of course, much of this was already evident when Illich was writing. Nonetheless, I think we can say that we are lately in a position to see even more clearly the degree to which we are realizing the degradation and misery about which Illich warned us. And while physical pollution and psychological impotence certainly have political dimensions, I'd like us to especially consider the matter of social polarization, at least from a particular angle. Illich's work offers us a variety of perspectives from which we can approach the subject of polarization. For example, in Deschooling Society and also Tools for Conviviality, which appeared four years later, Illich understood this polarization to be an inevitable consequence of the nature of our institutions, or as he says, the institutionalization of our values. Society will be necessarily polarized by universal compulsory education, which generates inequality precisely to the degree that it fosters the unsustainable and counterproductive expansion of schooling and simultaneously makes schooling up to an ever-shifting level of certification a gateway to full participation in society. Or again, society will be increasingly polarized by ever-increasing costs of healthcare when medicine is institutionalized or when technologies of transportation exceed a certain speed. So, for example, in Tools for Conviviality, Illich makes the following observation. Like the modern school system, hospital-based healthcare fits the principle that those who have will receive even more and those who have not will be taken for the little that they have. In schooling, this means that high consumers of education will get postdoctoral grants while dropouts learn that they have failed. In medicine, the same principle assures that suffering will increase with increased medical care. The rich will be given more treatment for itrogenic diseases, diseases induced by medical care itself, and the poor will just suffer from them. Rather than pursuing any of these specific lines of inquiry, however, I'd like to comment instead on what I take to be two interrelated themes that run through this portion of Village's work, personal autonomy and personal interdependence. I would suggest to you that the prevalence of the former theme, personal autonomy, accounts for his appeal, such as it is, among those we tend to think of as being on the right side of the political spectrum, libertarians most prominent among these. And it is the prevalence of the latter theme, personal interdependence, as well as other elements of religious thought, such as his critique of capitalist economies, that accounts for his appeal to those that we think of as being on the left side of the political spectrum. The fact that Illich holds these two themes together as one whole accounts for why his work tends to resist easy political characterization and tends to frustrate or disappoint partisans of the left and the right. The fact that as a society, we cannot hold these imperatives uh, together to both personal autonomy and personal independence accounts, at least in part, for our fractured and dysfunctional state. This is, in any case, my working thesis. During the course of the first talk, I spent some time discussing the importance Illich placed on personal autonomy and freedom, chiefly by describing his critique of anti-convivial tools or tools that we deploy to work for us rather than tools we can work with. I'll take just a few moments then, this time around, to consider again this particular emphasis in Illich's work before turning to the matter of personal interdependence. One way of understanding Illich's critique of institutions that become counterproductive as they cross a certain threshold of scale is to recognize that their ostensible success becomes a function of our growing dependence on what they have to offer. Considering this aspect of Illich's argument, I was reminded, for example, of Walker Percy's essay, The Loss of the Creature. The essay is too rich to adequately summarize, but suffice it to say that, like Illich, 
Percy feared that having accepted their role as consumers, individuals ceded their sovereignty over their own experience. Percy opens by explaining why it is so difficult for the sightseer to actually see the Grand Canyon. In short, because the sightseer does not approach the Grand Canyon as a sovereign knower, he has unburdened himself of that role in order to assume the role of consumer, in which role he approaches the canyon as an experience that has been overdetermined for him by the park service, postcards, brochures, photographs, etc. The highest point, the term of the sightseer's satisfaction, Percy argues, is not the sovereign discovery of the thing before him. It is rather the measuring up of the thing to the criterion of the performed symbolic complex. But this was only one illustration of a more pervasive, pervasive dynamic. This loss of sovereignty, Percy concludes, is not a marginal process, as might appear from the example of estranged sightseers. It is a generalized surrender of the horizon to those experts within whose competence a particular segment of the horizon is thought to lie. Traditional cultures are surrendered to Franz Boas. Decaying Southern mansions are surrendered to Faulkner and Tennessee Williams. But further on, Percy adds, no matter what the object or event is, whether it is a star, a swallow, a psychological phenomenon, the layman who confronts it does not confront it as a sovereign person as Crusoe confronts a seashell he finds on the beach. Instead, Percy writes, the highest role he can conceive himself as playing is to be able to recognize the title of the object, to return it to the appropriate expert, have it certified as a genuine find. He does not even permit himself to see the thing, as Gerard Hopkins could see a rock or a cloud or a field. If anyone asks him why he doesn't look, he may reply that he didn't take that subject in college. And with that last line, of course, Percy is in the 1950s anticipating elements of Illich's own critique of schooling. Indeed, he puts the matter more pointedly when Percy writes, if we look into the ways in which the student can recover the dogfish or the sonnet, we will see that they have in common the stratagem of avoiding the educator's direct presentation of the object as a lesson to be learned and restoring access to the sonnet or the dogfish as beings to be known, reasserting, that is, the sovereignty of the knower over the known. The confluence of Illich's critique and Percy's becomes even more evident near the end of the essay, The Loss of the Creature. The situation of the tourists at the Grand Canyon and the biology student, Percy explains, are special cases of a predicament in which everyone finds himself in a modern technical society. A society, that is, in which there is a division between expert and layman, planner and consumer, in which experts and planners take special measures to teach and edify the consumer. The measures taken are measures appropriate to the consumer. The expert and the planner know, the expert and the planner know and plan, but the consumer needs and experiences. Illich, who in the late 70s and early 80s wrote at length about what we might think of as the social construction of needs, and who already in de-schooling society argued that the chief lesson of modern schooling is that we all need it and more of it, would, I think, readily agree with Percy. The chief difference, so far as I can see, is one of emphasis. Percy focuses on the surrender of experience to the intellectual classes. Illich sees the same pattern at work in both the intellectual and material realms of human experience and abetted by the nature and logic of modern technology and institutions. So what Percy calls sovereignty, Illich calls personal autonomy or freedom. But to the degree that we are conditioned to understand freedom as consumers would, that is as merely the right to choose from a wide array of commodities services, and experiences, we are likely to misunderstand precisely what either Percy or Illich had in mind. However, the idea of autonomy or the self-sufficiency of the person, as I mentioned at the outset, 
is only one side of the coin for Illich. The other is the fact that, for Illich, our independence from paternalistic institutions and manipulative tools is for the sake of our mutual interdependence. In Tools for Conviviality, for example, he writes, I consider conviviality to be individual freedom realized in a person in personal interdependence and as such an intrinsic ethical value. Industrial society had, in Illich's view, de-skilled us in the arts of both self-care and mutual care. Having outsourced care to institutions and the service industry, we were more helpless and more adrift, bereft not only of a measure of dignity, but also of the deeply human consolations of giving and receiving help and comfort. According to Illich, people have a native capacity for healing, consoling, moving, learning, building their houses, and burying their dead. Unfortunately, we had, in his view, ceded each of these capacities to the professional classes and institutions. What might be most troubling about this development is not necessarily the loss of personal satisfactions and the sense of purpose that might arise from being useful to another person. Rather, it is that these practices, which we hardly ever now undertake for one another, were also what we might think of as binding agents. Through my care for another, I reach out beyond myself and even beyond the confines of my home to the wider community, to my neighbors. An experience of community is not so much a state to be inhabited, as it is a condition to be achieved, and it is achieved by constant practice. By caring for my neighbor in a time of need, I forge a communal bond. My neighbor becomes less of an abstraction. He or she takes on flesh and blood. Their history and my history are intertwined. We build up a narrative stock over time that further binds us in memory. When we have outsourced all of our mutual care to institutions and professionals, these ties atrophy. We recede from a common world of mutual interdependence into our own private enclaves of consumption, unable either to care for ourselves or for our neighbors. Naturally, there are seeming advantages to being gained, uh, to be gained from such a retreat. Mutual care can be hard, inconvenient, and often thankless work. In deschooling society, for example, Illich noted that Education for all means education by all. Would we be prepared or even willing to step into this role? In the 1960s and 70s, Illich had especially in view the schools, the medical profession, and the transportation industry. It is clear, however, that while these continue to inhibit the kind of capacities and skills and caring for one another that Illich prized, new challenges have presented themselves. In a 2016 essay, Alan Jacobs, who incidentally I credit with first making me aware of Illich's work a decade ago, makes some important observations along these lines. Jacobs begins with a story that had then been in the news. A couple in Maryland wanted to teach their two young children, ages six and 10, how to make their way home from school, which was a mile away. Unfortunately, on their first venture, the children were picked up by the police and the couple charged with negligence. As Jacobs observed, whether the couple was right or wrong in the degree of responsibility they entrusted their children with, what they did is the opposite of neglect. It is thoughtful, intentional training of their children for responsible adulthood. They instructed their children with care and the children practiced responsible freedom before being fully entrusted with it. And then the state intervened before the lesson could be completed. The charges were eventually dropped, but Jacobs draws a powerful lesson from this episode. I think this event is best described, Jacobs explained, as the state enforcing surveillance as the normative form of care. Jacobs goes on as follows. By, the enforce by enforcing surveillance as the normative form of care, the state effectively erases the significance of all other forms of care. Parents might teach their children nothing of value, no moral standards, no self-discipline, 
no compassion for others. But as long as those children are incessantly observed, then according to the state's standards, the parents of those children are good parents. And they are good because they are training their children to accept a lifetime of passive acceptance of surveillance. I'm not sure if Jacobs would see, as I do here, a continuation of the kind of de-skilling and outsourcing of care that Illich challenged so forcefully in the early 70s. But it seems to me that this episode and the rise of what Jacobs calls the surveillance as a normative form of care both lie on a trajectory with those developments. Indeed, it seems to me that a recovery of Illich for the 21st century would involve just such an expansion of his argument. It would recognize how digital technology allowed institutions to further escalate their reach rather than reckon with the limits they had previously ignored. Already in the 1970s, Illich perceived that modern institutions were entering a period of crisis, but he perceived an opportunity at that point. I believe that the present crisis of our major institutions ought to be welcomed as a crisis of revolutionary liberation, Illich wrote. This worldwide crisis of worldwide institutions, he added, can lead to a new consciousness about the nature of tools and to a majority action for their control. If tools are not controlled politically, they will be managed in a belated technocratic response to disaster. If these lines, especially that last clause, retain a sense of urgency, I would suggest it is because we are in a moment that was not unlike Illich's. While digital technologies may ultimately be interpreted as a radical challenge to analog institutions, they have also been used to sustain these old institutions, allowing them to persist in the mode of escalation. The manner in which they have been deployed has also amounted to a doubling down on the de-skilling and alienation that was already underway under the regime of industrial age institutions. And now we are once again confronted with a crisis of institutions. In some respects, it is a new crisis, but from another vantage point, it is the same crisis reignited after the digital extensions of analog institutions have reached their own limits. So where does this leave us? I am personally struck by the persistence of the virtues of hospitality and friendship that run through Illich's work. And I'll turn to these uh, by highlighting a rather obscure text, the transcript of a radio interview which Illich gave in 1996, which I'll also supplement with elements of Illich's conversation with David Cayley, which became a book titled Rivers North of the Future. Long ago in the mid-1990s, between stints as governor of California, Jerry Brown hosted a talk radio show called We the People. The show featured an eclectic set of guests, including Noam Chomsky, Gore Vidal, and Allen Ginsberg. On March 22nd, 1996, however, Brown aired a remarkable conversation with two guests uh, one would hardly expect to appear on a politically oriented talk show. The philosopher of technology, Carl Mitchum, to whose collaboration with Illich I alluded to last time, and Illich himself. We no longer live in the 1970s or the mid-90s, for that matter. We live in what can seem like a different world altogether, marked chiefly by the rise of digital technologies, which appear to raise very different issues than those raised by industrial-age tools and institutions that were the target of Illich's critical acumen at the time. Nonetheless, in this interview, Illich offered both a trenchant and a helpful diagnosis of our social disorders, as well as glimpses of a way forward. Illich's diagnosis, as we have already seen, remains pertinent because he saw better than most the deep-rooted sources of our disorders. The path forward, he suggested, that he embodied in his practice was the path of hospitality. As he put it to Brown, I do think that if I had to choose one word to which hope can be tied, it is hospitality. What is most resonant in Illich's early writing is the understanding that a certain set of modern institutions and the way of life they sustained had played themselves out and that a deep and thoroughgoing renewal of the social order was needed, beginning with a renewed appreciation for the person. 
In discussions of Illich's work, interpreters have occasionally missed the underlying ethic of his critique. Illich was specifically concerned with the manner in which counterproductive institutions de-skill human beings. But he was not just concerned with the loss of our vocational skills, the skills that a worker loses when their labor is automated, for example, or our inability to make repairs when it is so easy to buy a new thing. He was also concerned about a great social de-skilling, the loss of the capacity, as we have noted, to relate to and care for one another. It's important to note at this point the critical role played by the story of the Good Samaritan in Illich's thinking. As Illich always observed, Jesus was not answering the question, how shall I treat my neighbor? When he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, he is instead answering a deeper question. Who is my neighbor? Illich recognized that Jesus, what he, who he calls that most upsetting guy in the interview with Jerry Brown, was abolishing the limitation of hospitality to the in-group. The point of the story, as Illich went on to explain to Brown, is this. I can choose. I have to choose. I have to make my mind up whom I will take into my arms, to whom I will lose myself, whom I will treat as the vis-a-vis, that face into which I look, from whom I accept being who I am as a gift. The remarkable degree to which this story shaped Illich's thinking becomes apparent in the account he gave to Cayley in Rivers North of the Future. And it will be worth our time to take a little detour into this often unnoticed aspect of Illich's thought. Rivers North of the Future came about as a result of Cayley's persistence in wanting Illich to develop a comment he had made to Cayley in a previous exchange years earlier. That comment is summed up in an old Latin adage that goes like this, corruptio optimi pessima, which means the corruption of the best is the worst. Illich, in passing, suggested that this sums up the whole of the history of modernity. Cayley was, not surprisingly, astounded by this claim and pressed Illich to develop it at book length. Years passed by, and Illich was never able to do so for a variety of reasons. So finally, Cayley decided to propose another long interview in which Illich could present this thesis. The result was Rivers North of the Future. In it, Illich explains his proposition that Western modernity can best be understood not as an extension of Christianity, nor as a rejection of Christianity, but very precisely as a corruption or perversion of Christianity. The best in Illich's application of that Latin adage, is the church, and its corruption yields the worst, which is the state Western modernity now found itself in. Illich offers his comments as a kind of research proposal, and Rivers North certainly has the quality of a sketch of a complex argument in need of some further refinement and elaboration. Nonetheless, it contains a profound theory of Western modernity, one that deeply impressed, among others, the philosopher Charles Taylor, best known for his own rather profound theories of Western modernity. Taylor went on to write the introduction or the preface to Rivers North and to champion its publication. He found in Illich an anticipation of his own interpretation of the relationship between the church and modernity. For our purposes, I believe that Illich's thesis presents us with an intriguing and compelling perspective on the state of political culture. As we've noted, Illich's understanding of the parable of the Good Samaritan plays a critical role. Illich understood this story, specifically in connection with the incarnation of Christ, as a new radical possibility, as the appearance of a a radical new possibility. I believe that the incarnation makes possible a surprising and entirely new flowering of love and knowledge, Illich told Cayley. For Christians, He went on to say, the biblical God can now be loved in the flesh. St. John says that he has sat at table with him and that he has put his head on his shoulder, heard him, touched him, smelled him. And he has said that whoever loves another loves him in the person of that other. 
a new dimension of love has opened. What had been shattered was what Illich understood as the traditional basis for ethics, belonging, belonging to a clan or family or people or tribe. This we circumscribed the actions of the I that was the person. The Levite and the priest, for example, who passed the wounded Jew on the road, are in their own way acting within the parameters of the old ethic, given their particular roles. And the Samaritan, too, would have been acting ethically according to the traditional norms, had he also walked by. Instead, Illich argues he acted with a new freedom announced by Jesus. He chose to see in the wounded Jew a neighbor and to answer a personal call to help this Jew and care for him, to extend love beyond the parameters drawn by traditional ethics. The key element here, however, is how Illich understands this new freedom. A new kind of ought has been established, which is not related to a norm. It has a telos. It aims at somebody, some body, Illich emphasizes, but not according to a rule. Any attempt to explain this ought, Illich goes on to say, as corresponding to a norm, takes out the mysterious greatness from this free act. As Cayley puts it, in Illich's view, the parable of the Samaritan underwent a fatal change of meaning when it came to be understood as a teaching about the duty of care rather than about freedom. The distinction between what is demanded by a norm or a rule, Cayley adds, and what is recognized through a call is the foundation of Illich's thought. Illich then goes on to unfold through several intricately related steps how we get from hospitality, the freely chosen expression of love in response to a call, to the hospital, that is to say the institutionalization of hospitality, which is also to say it's outsourcing. This happens very early in the history of the church during the post-Constantinian period. And this is only the first step by which the ground is prepared for what Illich later characterizes as the criminalization of sin in the 12th century. And finally, the emergence of the modern state, modern institutions, and modern technology, each in their own way, abstracting love and care away from the face-to-face encounter, the felt call of the other to the realm of managed and prescribed care care which may even be imposed and required by institutional imperative. The radical freedom announced by the parable of the Good Samaritan is perverted into stifling and destructive institutional form. Let us now return to Illich's conversation with Jerry Brown with this background in mind and to the hope that that conversation offers us. The intimacy of the encounter of the Samaritan or the Palestinian, as Illich often called him to drive home the point to a modern audience, with the Jew was critical for Illich. It was during this latter phase of Illich's career that his interest shifted to questions related to media and media technology and their effect on human perception, culminating in his last major work in the Vineyard of the Text, an exploration of the emergence of the scholastic, scholastic culture of the book. He framed it as a commentary on the work of 12th century theologian Hugh of St. Victor. And another theme that's apparent during this stage, always latent in Lich's thought and practice, becomes increasingly prominent as well. That is the theme of friendship. Another key element of Lich's thought, which appears at various junctures in his conversation with Brown, is the significance of the body. It is clear that Illich worried about the degree to which the body And as a result, the person was lost through the use of modern means of communication. In his exchange with Brown, these concerns come across through a poignant reflection on how the gift we receive from the other is our own self, which turns on a discussion of the etymology of the word pupil, and that is pupil of the eye rather than student. About midway through their conversation, Illich tells Brown, 
I want to just go back to a great rabbinical and also, as you see, monastic Christian development beyond what the Greeks like Plato or Cicero already knew about friendship. There's a little thing there, which says they call it pupila or puppet, which I can see in your eye, the black thing in your eye, pupil, puppet, person, eye. It is not my mirror, Illich explains. It is you making me the gift of that which Yvonne is for you. That's the one who says, I hear. I'm purposely not saying this is my person. This is my individuality. This is my ego. No, I'm saying this is the one who answers you here, whom you have given to him. Illich goes on to add, this is how Hugh of St. Victor explains it. This is how the rabbinical tradition explains it, that I cannot come to be fully human unless I have received myself as a gift and accepted myself as a gift of somebody who has, well, today we say distorted me the way you distorted me by loving me. The discovery of the gift that is the self we receive from the other occurs uniquely in the context of the face-to-face encounter. When two people are present to themselves in the fullness of their embodied reality, as the Samaritan who encountered the Jew by the side of the road was. This portion of the conversation between Illich and Brown then evolves into a broader discussion of the renewal of the political order. Illich believed that the ancient relationship among virtue, friendship, and politics had been undone. In the classical view, a good society fostered virtue in its citizens, and friendship was in turn the culmination of the virtuous life. Alluding to Brown's own political service, Illich laments, I do not believe that friendship today can flower out, can come out of political life. But there was a measure of hope in recognizing that the ancient paradigm could be reversed. I do believe, Illich tells Brown, that if there is something like a political life to be, to remain for us in this world of technology, then it begins with friendship. Therefore, my task, Illich adds, is to cultivate disciplined, self-denying, careful, tasteful friendships. Mutual friendships always, he continues. I and you, and I hope a third one, out of which perhaps community can grow. Because perhaps here we can find what the good is. To make it short, Illich concluded, while once friendship in our Western tradition was the supreme flower of politics, I do think that if community life, if it exists at all today, it is in some way the consequence of friendship cultivated by each one who initiates it. But Illich recognizes in his prescription an implicit challenge to the way we ordinarily think about our obligations in an individualistic society. This, he says, is, of course, a challenge to the idea of democracy, which goes beyond anything which people usually talk about, saying each one of you is responsible for the friendships he can develop because society will be as good as the political result of these friendships will be. Nonetheless, it is the only way forward as far as Illich is concerned. There can be no substitute for the work of rediscovering ourselves in the other, of rediscovering our mutual personhood in the practice of hospitality, which, insofar as it flowers into friendship, may be the starting point of politics. Yet, here again, Illich is clear-headed about the obstacles thwarting hospitality. First, his earlier arguments about what I've called our social de-skilling are still valid, even if they have been unheeded. Illich often referred to these skills in the older formulation of an art we learn to practice. We have lost the art of dying, the art of suffering, as well as the art of living. Specifically, we are unpracticed in the art of hospitality. There is a further complication. Hospitality, Illich insists, requires a threshold 
over which I can lead you. And TV, internet, newspaper, the idea of communication abolished the walls and therefore also the friendship, the possibility of leading somebody over the door. This may seem like an odd thing on which to insist, the necessity, the necessity of leading someone over a threshold. But it reflects, I think, Illich's conviction that we must encounter one another in the fullness of our humanity, which can only happen when we meet face to face, when we can behold ourselves in the pupil of the other. So Illich tells Brown, hospitality requires a table around which you can sit, and if people get tired, they can sleep. Two years later, in a lecture at Bremen, Illich warned in a similar vein that, quote, the quest for truth cannot thrive outside the nourishment of mutual trust flowering into a commitment to friendship. He then spoke of how he set out to identify what he calls the atmosphere that makes such a flowering possible and that which undermines such a flowering. Only persons who face one another in trust can allow its emergence, he concludes. To drive the point home, in that same lecture, titled The Cultivation of Conspiracy, Illich drew on the ancient Christian practice of conspiratio, the holy kiss of the liturgy, in which the participants shared their breath or spirit with one another. It was in this conspiracy, literally this co-breathing, that the atmosphere conducive to pox or peace was established. It was in this practice that Illich found the sources of the practice of community that emerged in Christian Europe. The shared breath, Illich explained, the conspiratio is peace, understood as the community that arises from it. It is striking to observe the contrast between the altogether different kind of conspiracy that has in fact flourished in our midst, a spirit of conspiracy born out of our alienation, our distrust, and the cultivation of bad faith that seems to flourish in the disembodied spaces that now function as our public squares. Perhaps it seems altogether impractical and inadequate to suggest that the crisis of our moment should be met with a practice so seemingly humble and fragile, whose results can't be readily scaled up or optimized. Perhaps it even seems naive. But I would argue that the naivete lies with those who fail to recognize that our present crisis is so grave that to meet it adequately requires anything less than the slow, deliberate work of rebuilding not just our institutions, but the recovery of an even more fundamental reality the experience of a common world and a shared humanity. Near the end of his conversation with Brown, Illich told him that a practice of hospitality, recovering threshold, table, patience, listening, could generate the seedbeds for virtue and friendship and for the rebirth of community. We could do far worse than pursuing such hospitality even as we labor in other ways for our world and for our neighbor. And with that, I will wrap up my comments, and I will be delighted to hear or read, I should say, any questions you may have. Thank you all for, for listening. Okay, and so let me take a couple of these. I think that all of you should be able to, to see these. Um, Savannah, welcome, and... Um, are there tools you think uh, Sacassus thinks we should, I, I suspect you might mean Illich thinks we might, uh, we should outright reject social media, cars, et cetera. Right. I see that. Thank you. Um, for the sake of cultivating uh, such friendships. So I think I would say that um, that's certainly a possibility. So maybe I will answer you uh, in terms of what, what I would think. Um, I think there at least needs to be, the awareness of that possibility, uh, the willingness to, to acknowledge that that possibility might, might exist. And here I will share, uh, Illich's, um, reluctance to impose rules and norms, uh, which often ends up being what some of this amounts to. 
Um, but I think as we sort of consider wisely what certain tools require of us, what we contribute to by our use of certain tools, um, that their rejection, their renunciation, uh, maybe better put, uh, to use a word that, that Illich favored, um, would certainly be called for and that we would be willing to make that renunciation in favor of um, what a, uh, a a life without them would entail, simpler, uh, maybe a less convenient, but more rewarding or richer life uh, for how it would help us to better relate to our neighbors. And I would certainly say that there are, there are tools that I have, as far as I have been able uh, to do so, rejected precisely for that same reason. Um, and varieties of social media are certainly one example of that. Uh, and of course, the, the complexity, I would say the complexity of our situation, what is required of us by just trying to make a living in, in our contemporary society, to some degree can limit the, the freedom that someone may have to renounce certain of these tools. And so we find ourselves in the, in the position where we, we would need already a community prepared to sustain us in the work, in, in this act of renunciation. Uh, and that community is not existing and we have to take a leap of faith into it. But this is a very hard thing to do. And I certainly would not uh, want to prejudge what individuals should or should not do relative to their situation. Um, and I hope that makes sense. It's a rather complex issue. I, I see it as a re- rel- relatively delicate question. Uh, but in principle, yes, uh, there would certainly be some tools that by their scale, by what they demand of us, by what they impose, um, are best renounced uh, rather than negotiated with. I hope that makes some sense. Um, thank you, Sajay. Um, here's a question with threshold. Is this not the site uh, for for want, you identify as the combination of personal autonomy and personal interdependence. Threshold is the recognition of the distinction and interdependence of the self. Yeah, brilliant. Yes, absolutely so. Um, it certainly acts in that way, doesn't it? And that it was not a, a realization that had dawned on me. So thank you for that. It, it perfectly embodies that. Um, Jeff, it, welcome, Jeff. And is it fair to say that Illich saw modern tools as not only working for us uh, instead of with us, but that we are working for tools as well? Uh, I mean, certainly I think that we, we become the, the, the gravest risk may be that we become tools of our tools. Uh, I believe Illich uses that formulation. It's, it's, it's uh, Thoreau's form, formulation, but I think that Illich comes very close to it in, uh, in some place. In other words, that we would see ourselves um, to become servants of our tools, uh, that that is definitely expressed uh, in tools for conviviality, and I would say it's augmented by Illich's later uh, recognition of of how we've moved from tools, as he calls them, in the early seventies, or uh, the the age of instrumentality, to the age of systems, which even more thoroughly incorporate us into their operations. Um, so yes, I think that's fair. Um, and yes, Savannah, right. The, I, I think the community is is critical. Um, um, I'm I'll be scrolling sort of up and down here. Um, so, Richard, I'm sorry, I missed yours earlier on. Uh, can can you repeat the ancient conspiratorial bit again? Um, the word is is the the liturgical term for the holy kiss. Uh, what Saint Paul refers to as the holy kiss in the New Testament. Um, I believe it's in one of the Thessalonian epistles and, uh, it was, it was a co-breathing, right? So conspiratio is the, the word for together and breathing. Uh, and so it was in the intimacy of that face-to-face encounter, that gesture, that liturgical gesture, um, that it saw, uh, a, you know, much deeper possibility for the building of relationship and, and interpersonal encounter. Um, and of course, it's useful now, in my view, to to see that sort of conspiracy uh, laid side by side with the kind of conspiracy that I suggested here uh, that flourishes in our own day, uh, which in many ways embodies the very opposite. Uh, and, and as a result of the conditions that Illich lamented, 
And with regard, so Richard, another one of your questions here. Um, what is the role of experts and doctors, plumbers at all? How do they play a role in community? Um, so I, the language of experts was in this particular talk specifically um, related to um, Walker Percy's discussion. And I think there would be, there's, there would be a balanced strike here, right? It would be um, foolish of me in some respects to reject the knowledge that, well, let me put it this way. Illich is in one sense, a kind of expert. Uh, he has expertise, uh, linguistic expertise through his long devotion to 12th century texts. He has an expertise in that field that it would be foolish of me to resist. Um, but I think there, there, the point here is that there, there ought to be a way of, of entering into the sort of master teacher relationship. He develops this to some degree in, in de-schooling society, um, that is not institutionalized where both, where I become merely a consumer of knowledge, right? And I cede uh, my capacity to perceive the world, uh, to act in it, to the pronouncement of, of experts. Um, it, it is interesting the degree to which this has become a very live issue uh, in, in present society. We, we live, at least in American culture, in, a, in an, um, what, what might be fair to characterize at least blandly as a populist moment uh, where expertise has been questioned. And many of our political lines, in fact, I think can be drawn by the degree to which we are willing to defer to experts, the degree to which we rebel against them, um, and, and why we do so. Uh, and so I think there is a role for those who have learned uh, and in a kind of relationship that we might establish with them. But ultimately, it would, it would be one that does not reduce each individual to merely a consumer of services, uh, but that invites uh, each of us, I think, to, to take up um, uh, our legitimate roles in the practice of caring for ourselves, uh, in the case of doctors, for example, um, the doctor that is uh, one who practices medicine in such a way that the person remains a reality, right? Rather than uh, an abstraction. Uh, this would be, let me take a, a bit to develop, but uh, where where the life becomes an abstraction, a kind of idol, and we are perceived merely as um, our chart, our medical chart from birth to death, um, and the person, the individual person is lost in that. And so there's a way I would say of, re of relating to the expert as a non-expert. But on the other hand, there's also a mode of, of being the sort of person with expertise uh, that is different than what modern institutions tend to, to inhabit. Um, I hope that's helpful. Yes. And, and sorry, I appreciate your comment. And, and I, I'm happy for this to become not only a Q&A, but a kind of responsive um, format. In, important to distinguish experts understood as certifiers and those who possess wisdom, skill, et cetera. Yes, that's right. Lauren, I, I, yes, thank you, Richard, for that reply. And um, how do you think Illich would interpret learning via infinite online resources rather than traditional school? Um I, I think the answer is he wouldn't be very pleased with either necessarily. Um, uh, it, it is curious and I, I would want to think a little bit more about this and probably ought to have already in de-schooling society, Illich does develop this alternative, these learning webs. Uh, and he's writing this in the early seventies. Computers are already present and, and Illich alludes to some of the possibilities that they might enable. Uh, but the internet is not quite, at least not the way we know it anyway. Um, and so there, there seems to have been a way in which we might have deployed, uh, digital resources towards, uh, self-guided learning or for the cultivation of sort of, uh, learner teacher relationships, uh, voluntarily entered into. Um, and some of that I suspect does happen. Uh, but the, the, I think the turn that internet culture has generally taken uh, is in some respects to double down on institutionalization um, for the, the already sort of uh, what Illich I think would say uh, deforming shape of, of the modern institutional school is just transplanted 
onto online formats. And so in one respect, maybe we might say an, uh, an opportunity was lost, but only because the logic carried over and the assumptions carried over. And our society is still uh, ordered by the assumption that we need to be certifi- certified um, through this process of formal education. And so in the Internet, in some respects, just becomes a new and, and to some degree, even more deforming um, variety of that. Uh, Henry, I'm reading your, your comment now. The medical part reminded me of uh, Illich talking about how we view our own bodies via our organs uh, versus humor, statistics and charts rather than how we feel, right? And I will say um, this is in some respects a, a, a preview of the third and final talk, which I'll give in, um, in a couple of weeks or three weeks, three Wednesdays from today. Um, and, and that is the this question of perception, which becomes so critical to Illich's later work um, and the way that our perceptions are mediated by technology. And it involves just this sort of thing, uh, not only how we smell and see or don't smell and see the world, uh, lose touch of it, uh, but even how we perceive our own, lose, lose the ability, the capacity to perceive ourselves and reduce ourselves to uh, infer, to understanding ourselves by analogy to information systems. There's a, a lot of rich material there, which I do hope to draw out in the next um, in the next talk. And Savannah, did Illich ever comment on dancing as primary or foundational means to civilize instead of given how it fully engages a person with each other? Um, that's a great question to which I don't have uh, an answer. And, and there are some here in the conversation that, that would know perhaps better than I uh, whether that was something that uh, Illich ever touched on or commented on. But there's certainly an involvement of the person there. Um, and also, I would say, an opportunity for the development of um, or the occurrence of proportionality, the observance of proportionality in dance, um, which is a, a theme that, again, would maybe take a little bit of time to unpack. Uh, so I, th- I think there's something there that might be worth exploring. I just don't personally have the... Um, the knowledge to answer that. And I'm scanning just to see if there are any other um, questions that don't necessarily arrive um, in the order in which they're posted. And so I, I don't know that I've missed any. Um, and Lauren, okay, so I, I do see yours now. Um, Do Illich view the local church as the institutionalization of values? Would he have been more interested in church around the table or home? Um, I think the best way that I can answer that is that he certainly saw the, the his the church to which he belonged, uh, the Catholic Church, um, to which I think he would say um, he remained faithful uh, in his own way uh, as certainly taking on an institutional shape that in some respects, becomes the paradigm for all of the other later um, developments towards institutionalization in the modern West. Uh, this is in many ways the, the thesis that he develops in uh, Rivers North of the Future. Um, whether So the local church is interesting. That's a, that's a, I, I think of that as a kind of distinctly Protestant phrase, um, and, and especially in independent church traditions. Um, and, and it certainly... The local church, uh, perhaps retains the ability to act less as an institution and, and more as a site of hospitality and of fellowship, table fellowship, um, face to face encounters. Uh, and so there is that, I think, possibility in the life of a local parish or a local congregation, um, that will to some degree be lost to the degree that that ecclesial body uh, does become institutionalized. But that's a, a good question um, to ask. Yes, uh, that's right. The distinction between the church is she and it in Kaylee's book and Illich's point about vernacular Christianity. Uh, vernacular is another one of these um, Illichian terms, uh, which suggests something, and not just Vernacular, in a sense, we use it in terms of, uh, you know, common language or language of the people. Um, but something that somehow escapes the economic ordering of society, the, the tendency of the economy to uh, colonize all, all aspects of life, right? Um, I saw recently that, uh, Twitter has created a feature 
which allows you to monetize your tweets. Um, and there are all these ways in which we're, we're invited to monetize, to, to render our work economic, um, which develops a lot of this, um, in, in shadow work. Uh, and so the, um, the vernacular non-institutionalized, non-commodified, um, non-regimentized uh, or, or standardized practices of the faith certainly become uh, very important, can be very important. This is sort of this awkward moment where I don't want to cut anybody off who might be in the process of typing, um, but simultaneously recognize if, if we have come to the end of our of our time. Um I want to say thank you. This is certainly, as we've, as we've noted, not the most convivial environment. And I, I certainly would long to be in the same room with, um, with all of you. Uh, but I'm grateful for your presence, uh, your interest in Illich's work. Um, as always, I, I hope that this serves as nothing, uh, more or less than an invitation, uh, to engage his work directly. Uh, and there will be, uh, like I said, one more talk, um, three Wednesdays from today. And there will be a separate um, registration for that, as I mentioned. And if you've registered for this event, um, I, there will be an email that will remind you if you're interested to register for that last uh, for that last lecture. So with that, um, my thanks to each of you. And um, I hope you're well. And I look forward to hearing from you. Feel free to reach out to me um, through the Study Center website. You can find my email, many of you are local, and certainly I'd be happy to meet with you face-to-face to uh, to talk about Ivanovich or other things.